0: Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Open Table. My name is Zach Diesler, as I was introduced before. And thank you for not leaving after you saw the introduction of who your guest speaker was going to be. I really, really appreciate that. Does my soul good. Um, I'm honored to be with you in this, uh, in this beautiful church. It's truly cathedral-like, isn't it? I love where you guys do church. I'm really grateful to be here. Uh, a little about myself before we begin. I was, I was born and raised in the East Bay. Met my beautiful and brilliant wife the first week of attending San Diego State, and we've been married since 2003, and we adopted our son in 2010. He's almost 21 years old now, which makes me feel uh, all kinds of emotions. I've been an ordained pastor since 2011, associate pastor of two churches in the Bay Area over the last 13 years, as well as held Wayne's old position at Contra Costa Christian School for a few years, where I met some really incredible people, some of you know them very well. I'm currently working at the school part-time as a spiritual counselor while getting my master's in counseling from Western Seminary, where Wayne also happens to be an alum. And I also run a ministry in Oakland, helping people get clean and off the streets, alongside my wife when she's not killing it as a professor of theater at Diablo Valley College. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, we live in Concord. We have a Beagle. I'm a die-hard Oakland A's fan, which is not an easy thing to admit in a mixed crowd. Uh, I love all things Oakland, especially the people we've been able to meet over the last five years in our ministry. Recently, we were able to come alongside one of our friends uh, to take her to Arizona to keep her off the streets, get clean, and to reconnect with some family out there. Uh, because we have amazing partners, as soon as she said that she was thinking about taking up her sister's offer to go to Arizona, she hadn't even finished her sentence. I was already on Southwest looking up flights. I took a drive out there in April with my son to deliver her belongings. And I was excited to see her new place and and meet her sister, but something was up as soon as we got there. Uh, Our friend greeted us with warmth and appreciation, but her sister barely acknowledged my enthusiastic wave before she went to her bedroom and closed the door. It was weird, but I shook it off, and we went to go get a bed for our friend at Walmart so she didn't have to sleep on the living room couch anymore. We got back to the house, we started setting up the bed when her sister came in the room, and the best way I could describe it is she, she just lit me up. Uh, mind you, these were the first words she'd ever spoken to me. I'm going to edit them for the Sunday service. But the basic gist was that she believed that I was an enabler, that I was either too stupid to realize that I was being taken advantage of, or that I was complicit in enabling my friend to stay in her addiction. Her last words were that this was a family matter, and I'm not family, so stay out, because I'm making things worse for everyone. It had been a while since I was talked to like that, and, and it stunned me. She walked out of the room. My, my friend apologized for her sister, and she suggested we stop setting up stuff and just go get something to eat. I'm going to return to that story, but in that moment, a verse kept rolling through my head because I was feeling all sorts of different emotions, and this is the launching point for the message this morning. It's found in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I was thinking, how did Jesus balance grace and, grace and truth so well? Jesus is the Word become flesh. He lived among us, and while he was here, he showed his glory, and he also showed his humanity. We don't have, a time, uh, we don't have time today to do a theological study on this, but it, it is a lot of fun. But it's important to note that as Christians, we believe in one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son, and he was fully God and fully man. It's a beautiful mystery. So if Jesus was in my shoes, would he have handled the sister based on a supernatural ability to suppress his emotions? Or did he have to learn, like all of us, how to achieve that balance? If you have your Bibles, turn to to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be throwing verses at you left and right, just just as a warning. Most of them won't be on the screen uh, because I didn't want to be too much work for you guys. So you're welcome. Uh, But if you'd like uh, my notes afterwards, I'd be happy to share them with you. I don't want you to take my word for anything I'm saying today. You have to go to the word yourself and make sure that what I'm saying is true. So in Luke uh, chapter two, we read something really interesting in verse 40. It says, now the child, this is talking about Jesus, continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Later in that same chapter, in verse 52, it says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. So when John says in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was full of grace and truth, based on what we just read, the fullness was a process. This takes nothing away from Jesus' deity. You can be sinless and also immature. Does that make sense? Let me read to you what a a conservative Reformed theologian says about this dichotomy. Sorry, should I I adjust this mic or just use this one? I can use this one, yeah. Beauty of uh, outside church, right? So again, this takes nothing away from Jesus' deity. You can be sinless and immature. At the same time, let me read to you what a conservative reformed theologian says about this dichotomy. Our Lord Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. This increase in wisdom and grace was a constant experience of our Lord's human nature. He kept increasing in his ability to skillfully use the knowledge he obtained. David Mathis from Desiring God, which is another conservative reformed outlet, puts it like this. God could have sent a full-grown Christ And from the beginning, he could have created a world of static existence without infants, children, awkward teens, middle-agers, declining seniors, just a race of young, spry, mature adults. But God didn't do it that way, and he doesn't do that way today. He designed us for dynamic existence, for stages and seasons of life, for growth and development in body and in soul, both toward others and toward God. I think that's profound and encouraging. Wherever you're at today in your walk with the Lord, Jesus is calling you to grow as he grew. Jesus is our Lord, our Savior, and he's our example. I love all three descriptions there, but I want to focus on the last one. If he's our example, that means we can follow in his footsteps and in principle, living in grace and in truth. So how did he do it? Well, here's a couple more verses for you. In John, 15, five, sorry, John 5, 19, he says, he only did what he saw the Father doing. That means there may have been times where he wanted to do something else. Not that he was going to sin, but that he was growing in understanding. I think about when he turned water into wine. If you remember that story, his mom said, hey, you know, we're out of wine. And, and his mom, like a classic Jewish mother, I grew up with a Jewish mother myself, so I know exactly how it is. Like, the mom came and was like, hey, my son can do this. He can, he can actually make <laughs> water into wine. And Jesus says, I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus is like, it's not my time. But then later on, what does he do? He was growing in understanding. That was his first miracle. He grew in understanding. He listened to the father and he said, you know what, actually, okay, now I'm going to do this. I'm going to honor my mother and I'm going to do this miracle. John 7, 24, it says, when he judged, he judged with righteous judgment. He didn't judge according to man's standards or the cultures or a certain political position. John eight eleven. he steps in to save the woman caught in adultery. No condemnation, but love, grace, grace and an exhortation to her at the very end to go and sin no more. What an incredible story. She's about to be stoned for committing a crime worthy at the time of being stoned, according to the very word that Jesus himself wrote. But Jesus steps in and says, no, I don't condemn you, and neither does anyone else. So if Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he did it in a way that we can imitate, yet is this how people, especially those outside the church, would describe us? as full of grace and truth. Remember the verse we just read in Luke, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. In favor with God and in favor with people. When you really think about it, it's pretty easy actually to be hated by the world. It doesn't take much effort, especially in this political climate. (laughs) What's harder to do is to obey God. When when he asks us to do in the full canon of scripture, I'm going to show you a couple of the verses here. In no particular order, here's how God wants us to interact, specifically with unbelievers, people who aren't Christians. 1 Peter 2.12, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. And even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he, when God, judges the world. Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Romans fourteen eighteen. For whoever serves Christ in this way is to, is pleasing to God and approved by men. Second Corinthians eight twenty one. For we are taking great care to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord but also in the eyes of men. Philippians two fifteen. Be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and perverse generation, in which you shine as lights in the world. First Timothy five ten. Be well known for good deeds. Such as bringing up children, entertaining strangers, washing the feet of the saints, imparting relief to the afflicted, and devoting oneself to every good work. Just a few more, Titus 2.8, have wholesome speech that is above reproach, so that anyone who opposes us will be ashamed to have nothing bad to say about us. James, show it by his good conduct, by deeds done in humility that comes with wisdom. 1 Peter three fifteen and 16. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect and keep a clear conscience so that those who slander you may be put to shame by your good behavior in Christ. I think the reason that there are more verses on interacting with unbelievers with grace than with truth is that we are prone to pride and an ungodly desire to be right. If we're really honest with ourselves, it's really easy to blur the lines between our flesh and our spirit when we're in truth mode. I recognize this in myself all the time in my interactions with my wife. There are times when I'm convinced that I am right. I don't know if there's anybody else there who can identify with that. You're convinced if she would just let me set up my exhibits and, and call my witnesses. I can prove that I'm right. And a few times she's actually done that. And I've heard the words, you're right. And I got to tell you, in the silence that usually follows that sentence, it briefly satisfies my flesh, but it devastates my soul. Because along the way to making my case, I've caused a lot of hurt. When I do premarital counseling, I get to share wisdom based on experience. And I tell my couples, when it comes to arguments, you have to decide, do you want to be right, or do you want to love right? I'm still growing in this area. Thank God I have a loving and patient wife and a loving and patient savior. I think the order of grace and truth in John 1.14 is a purposeful one. Now, what do we do about truth? Because if the sermon just ended here, you could get the wrong impression that I'm saying we should only focus on being full of grace. And that's not my intention at all. First of all, God is truth. God's word is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. The Bible is full of uncomfortable truths, truths that go against the culture and against our own hearts. I did a, an in-depth Bible study on what, the Bible says on our response to truth should be, and it, it's fascinating. We're going to do another verse blast, starting in the old, finishing with the new. So, so pay, pay close attention here. These are just some of the verses that God says. This is our response to truth. We should serve the Lord in truth, in Joshua 24. We should walk before the Lord in truth in 1 Kings. We should be divinely led in the truth, Psalm 25. We should walk in the Lord's truth, Psalm 26. We should speak forth the truth, Psalm 40. Have truth in our innermost being, Psalm 51. Praise the Lord's truth, Psalm 71. Call upon the Lord in truth, Psalm 145. Seek the truth, Jeremiah 5.1. Judge with truth, Zechariah 8.16. Love truth, Zechariah 8.19. Practice the truth, John 3.21. Worship the truth, John 4, 23, 25. Know the truth, John 8.31. Obey the truth, Galatians 5. Listen to the message of the truth, Ephesians 1. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4. Occupy one's mind with truthful things, Philippians 4. Accurately handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy. Love indeed, and in truth, and it goes on and on. There's actually 20 more verses there. Did you catch what was in common throughout all those verses? I counted about six verses that talked about sharing the truth with others, and the rest of them were all about us. The canon of Scripture cannot be more clear. Our response to truth is for us to love it, worship it, believe it, practice it, occupy our mind with it, grow in it, and then when we've done all that, of course, share it. Does that mean everything we say will be pleasant? No, but it shouldn't be for the purpose of offending. The word of God says we shouldn't be a stumbling block to our brothers and our sisters. I run with my dog a couple times a week. He's this beagle, and uh, we love him, and this one time we ran, and we were running on the sidewalk, and there was a grate, you know, for construction or pg and or whatever it was. We ran across that great and it, it made a huge noise and he hated it and he almost jumped out of his leash. So now every time that we run, he wants to avoid that grate. Every time we run, there's a lot of grates on the sidewalks, especially where I live in Concord. And so I'm constantly having to pull off the sidewalk and go around these things. And for me, at first, I got to be honest, and I hope I'm not a terrible dog owner, I was like, get over it. You know, like you're the dog, I'm the human, just trust me. And a lot of these greats don't even make noise, you know? So yeah, that one great made noise and you didn't like it, but let's run together and I'll show you the greats that don't make noise, but it doesn't matter. If he sees a great at all, whatever it is, he avoids it. And so my choice is I can make him do it and teach him that it doesn't make noise or I can, in grace, just avoid him. Is it that important for me? 1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God. 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8 says, So the honor for you is to is for who to believe. But those who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word. We have to make sure that people, if people are being offended, it's their flesh that is being offended by Christ, not by us. If we share the gospel, people will reject it, but they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting the gospel. We are not Jesus. We're not the word of God. We are not the gospel. We are simply the humble messengers who are in desperate need of the message ourselves. I love Colossians 4, 6. Your speech must always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. I'm going to ask Jonathan and and I think Mike to come up here and and do a little parable for me. I'm going to call this parable the parable of the good outfielder. Uh, as they're coming up, I was a Little League coach for my son's baseball team. Just found out that Tony is as well. God bless you, man. That's a tough job. I was, uh, I was a Little League coach in Moraga for one year. It was fun, and I love the kids. Um, the parents, the intensity, it was a little much. Uh, but, <laughs> but it was fun. When you're teaching elementary kids the fundamentals of baseball, there's a specific way you train them, especially on how to catch a fly ball you tell them that the first step is always back. So when they see a fly ball, the first step that they should take is always back. It's aimed at trying to curb their gut instinct just to wildly charge every fly ball that's hit towards them. Because when you're young, you can't really gauge distance super well. So every ball looks like you have to run towards it. Um, and that gets you in a lot of trouble. But if you take a step back and the ball is gonna drop in front of you, you still have a great chance at catching it. And here's why, the, the step back you take Actually, is a weight shift. You want to just uh, just just kind of symbolize that, just just a little weight. Thank you, <laughs> thank you guys. They don't really know what I'm asking them to do, so I really appreciate it. But you take that step back; it's a weight shift from your front to the back, and you can actually use that momentum, even though you're taking a step back, to get an explosive burst of energy to go forward as well. So let's do an example. Let's uh, let's throw one short, um, and just shift his weight to catch it. So just throw one short, and then shift your weight, and then come come catch it. Shifts his weight, comes in. Almost. It's all good, it's all good. But still, so he's got a chance, he's still got a chance at it. We'll try one more time. (laughs) The main reason you take a step back isn't to help you catch the ones in front of you, it's really to make sure none of them go over your head. Let's uh, throw one more short, let it drop actually this time in front of you. So take a step back, and then it drops in front of you. Okay. If the ball drops in front of you, you can hold the runner to a single. You can also try to throw another runner out. You can actually keep someone from scoring a run. You've got a lot of options if the ball is in front of you. But if you let a ball go over your head, you're in a world of trouble. So let's, uh, let's charge and, and let it go over your head, not too far. <laughs> <laughs> that ball could roll into no man's land if you have a home run. So if you're a good outfielder when you're young, you learn to take a step back. So let's go ahead and throw a few long ones. Let them track them this time. Hopefully, uh, catch it. <laughs> yeah. So when you take that step back, you can read the ball. And if it's traveling further, go ahead. You yeah, can do another one. If it's traveling further, you can continue the momentum you already took. By taking a step back, you can continue that momentum and go further. And you've got a good chance at tracking that one down. Yeah. You guys are making me look good. Now, when you watch the pros, um, actually, th- that's all. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, guys. <laughs> now, when, when you watch the pros, or if you come out, this is also a preview to see our, our softball team. Um, this is three of us right here on a softball team. Um, if you come out and see us, or if you watch the pros, you, you actually probably won't see the outfielders take a step back. But that's not because they're doing something wrong. Um, that's because um, you're better at reading the ball you know as you're older than when you were as a little leaguer, a- at least most of the time. We may not do it perfectly every time on the softball team. And actually some pros, you know you could see it happen all the time. They charge it and they didn't read it right. Uh, those lights at Heather Farm are really tricky, I'm just saying. Um, but this goes back to the growth principle. We have to grow this muscle because it goes against our instinct. because as we're first learning to play when the ball is hit, we don't know where it's going. The goal is not to anticipate, but to follow. And this goes for interactions with unbelievers. Follow the lead of the person that's in front of you. And at the exact same time, follow the lead of the spirit as you listen and then respond. We have to take a step back. And then we have to lead with love. Because that's our package for speaking the truth. Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head that is Christ. It's got to be wrapped in love or else like 1 Corinthians 13 says it's nothing but a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. One last Bible reference and then, and then we'll close for the morning. Acts 17, uh, I think is quite, quite possibly the greatest sermon preached by someone who wasn't Jesus. In verses 22 through 34, Paul is preaching to a, a total melting pot of religious and, and pagan people philosophers, atheists, humanists, sorcerers, and everyday people. He gets up in the middle of town square, where people are used to hearing discussions of religion and philosophy, and he does a masterclass in balancing grace and truth as an imperfect human being. So we're going to go through those verses, and I think they'll be up here as well. Acts 17, 22, are they? I didn't want to lie. OK. <laughs> so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. And he said, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. Let's stop there. Let's take a look at what he just did. His first words to them are full of grace. He compliments them. He encourages them on their faithfulness to a religion that is false. But he finds something there to encourage them on. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So here he's pointing out something in their culture, something that is theirs. So it's not foreign to them. It's germane to their society. This altar with an inscription to an unknown God. The word ignorance might seem harsh to our 21st century eyes, but that word just means not knowing. He's just echoing what's already written. It's an unknown God. You don't know who this God is. You have this unknown God. I know who this God is. Let me, let me tell you about him. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. So now he tells them about God, about his nature, his nearness to the people. If you really read that passage, it's all about the great stuff, the the grace and the love, all those things about God that are all true about him. And then he says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his descendants. He does something really shocking there. In a Christian sermon, he quotes a secular poet. And it's secular poetry that he knows by heart. It's memorized. He quotes it by memory and uses the truth that was in that poem for God's glory and makes an immediate connection to his audience. He takes the quote and he applies it to God's character, that he is our father and that he doesn't dwell in an image made by man, that he is Lord of heaven and earth. And then he continues, Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Now now Paul talks about repentance. But it's not just to these people. It's for everyone. All of us need to repent. He puts himself in their shoes. He doesn't stand in judgment of his audience. His focus is not on the specifics, but on the concept that God has raised a man from the dead to prove his ability to be Lord over death, which means he's got the power to judge and redeem. And Paul whets their appetite to see if they want more. He doesn't give everything away. He doesn't lead them into prayer for salvation. He just speaks the truth in love with incredible grace. If you were to put a percentage on it for this sermon, I think it looks like 80% grace and 20% truth. I mean, it's all truth. But if you were to parse them out into mercy and judgment, it's, it's 80-20. Now, what was their reaction to the sermon? Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff. But others said, we shall hear from you again concerning this. So Paul went out from among them. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So some sneered. That's to be expected but they weren't offended by Paul's behavior or his speech. They were offended by his ideas, his concepts. That's a huge difference. And the others, they said, you know, we'll hear you again. We like what you said. We'll we'll, we'll listen to you again. And then what did Paul do? He left. He did his job. He planted the seeds and he let God do the growth. In the very next verse, it says some men joined and believed, specifically a man and a woman who Luke, the writer of Acts, names them so that people back then could read this story and then go check it out and talk to those exact people and see if it was true. This is our model. I didn't put this in your notes, but I like to think of John 1.14 like this and pay special attention to the order of the words. Be full of grace with others and ourselves and be full of truth with ourselves and with others. Take a step back. Lead with love. Encourage what you see that is good. And there's always something good to see if we look with the right eyes. Tell of God's goodness, his greatness, his love, his mercy, and grace. Use things within the culture that people can relate to. Bring it back to the gospel, the truth of repentance, Jesus rising from the dead, and then leave it in their hands. Plant, water, let God do the growth. Let these verses be our aim, 2 Timothy two twenty four through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So after dinner with my friend in Arizona, we went back to the house and I asked if it would be all right to talk with her sister for a moment. Now, I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong. I knew I wasn't enabling someone to save their money for drugs or anything like that. After all, she had invited her sister to come live with her. I was just making it happen. And I thought it was kind of helpful to drive her stuff from Oakland to Arizona. So they didn't have to deal with that and, and I got her a bed so that everyone could sit on the couch for a change. So I wasn't expecting a parade, but maybe maybe a small thank you, you know? But I also knew that I was a sinner, just like everyone else. And I needed to grow in humility and grace and truth. And it was more important for me to love right than to be right. I didn't want to be a stumbling block to her receiving the gospel. And who knows, I, I might be the only Christian in her life. The stakes are high. My brothers and sisters the stakes are really high so i took a step back i humbled myself and i opened with an apology for anything that could have come across as being hurtful to her or to her family i asked for forgiveness and allowed her to be my teacher to to help me to understand i told her i'm an imperfect father of jesus i get stuff wrong a lot but i want to help because i love her sister and their family and that changed everything she went from tearing me down, all of a sudden building me up, asking me questions about our ministry, sharing some things that I actually did not know about her sister, which was really helpful in understanding the family dynamic better, how I can help better. And she ended with, you know, I wish there were more Christians that would do a lot of this kind of work. And I pray that that will be continuing, that I'll be continually growing in that and us as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to examine your character, that you were full of grace and truth, that you grew in wisdom just as you grew in stature, that you were pleasing to God in how you interacted with the world. Father, I ask that you would help us to follow your example, help us to deny our fleshly instincts to chase truth and to take a step back instead and to lead with love and speak the truth in love. Thank you for this opportunity. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.